don't know if you've ever felt a moment in your spiritual life where you have uh, been in a bit of a lull. And not just like a lull, like a deep, dark valley. I'll be honest with you, and I'm just going to get vulnerable here. Please don't like send me a bunch of advice emails. But as of late, I- I've felt that way myself. And you might be thinking, wow, you, don't you get paid to be spiritual? Yes, I do. Um, but I go through those moments too, right, where, where there's this tension. And, and I don't know if you noticed even in the themes and the content of what we sang this morning and how we sang, there was this tension of the goodness of God and yet uh, times where we maybe feel distant from him. In fact, that song that we sang, All My Days, uh, I remember when Andy called me into his little recording space here on campus and he said, hey, listen to this, listen to this thing I just wrote. Yeah, he wrote that tune, right? So it's from Psalm 23, and you may have heard it before, but I'd like to read it again here. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Good news so far, right? Now listen to the tension. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. (laughs) It's funny, the author here, the psalmist, uh, David, in this particular case. You know, it's not just like, even though I hit these speed bumps in life, right? Or even though there's a hiccup every now and then. Like, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that's pretty aggressive language, right? I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever, especially in the Psalms and throughout the scripture. You sense this tension of the kingdom of God having already come, but not yet completely here. And the reality is we're living in that tension right now. We uh, look to be a resurrection Sunday people. We used to be a good Friday people and it feels like Saturday, doesn't it? feels like that in-between time where we're waiting for Jesus to make our joy complete, to come back, to return, to consummate the kingdom. But in the midst of that walking with him, there are these moments of tension where we feel distant from him, where it feels like in our life he's just vanished somehow, like out of the out of thin air he's just gone or maybe that happened over time it was kind of a ramp down but now it's not about you know your prayers go up and the answer is wait or the answer is no it's as if your prayers go up about two feet and then there's five foot thick of steel right above you and they just bounce right back down you're going I don't even know if God is there anymore I believe that Jesus has something to say to us if that's you this morning, and it's me. This is how this passage in particular in John chapter 16 spoke to me personally this week. I just want to share it with you this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to open up to the book of John in chapter 16. The book of John will be about 80% of the way through your Bible. Remember, this is a friend of Jesus who walked with him for three years and was really one of his closest friends, wrote a biography of the life of Jesus in order to convince us to put our active trust in him. And so where we're at in this narrative is that Jesus has been hanging with these guys, these 12 disciples, for the better part of three years and 
and he has done miracles. Sorry, I'm going to move this. He's done mir. Oh my gosh, that's heavy. That's so heavy. Like I feel like if I if I lift this thing, I'm going to rip my pants or something, and I don't want to want to do that. It's not that heavy. Um, all right, sorry, Andy, if I broke it. Pay for it yourself. Um, okay, so Jesus has been hanging with these guys for the better part of three years. He's done miracles. He's been teaching them, all that stuff. Now they're in their final days together in the city of Jerusalem. They've celebrated a, a religious meal together. And what Jesus has been sharing with them is kind of his last words. And, and what we're coming to now is a, is a time where he's going to reiterate this kind of notion that he is leaving, that he's going to die, but he will eventually be back. He's going to reiterate that to them. And here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to go through the passage one time and, what, and do what is called interpret the passage. We're going to understand what does Jesus mean to his disciples when he says these things. Too often, and this is just a little Bible study tip, just so you know, too often we go to this question, what does this passage say to me? You got to stop, stop earlier than that. What does this passage say? Question mark. Just what does it say? So that's what we're going to do. What is Jesus saying to his disciples? And then we're going to import that principle into modernity, into where you are in the here and now, and ask the question, what does the passage say to me? Is everybody with me? Cool. John chapter 16. If you uh, have your Bibles open there, if not, there's a Bible in the seat back in front of you. You can use your device, uh, follow along on your phone or whatever it is. And we're going to pick it up in verse 16. This is an ongoing dialogue. And so Jesus continues here and he says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is, it that, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, in a little while you will see me and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, as, I, as I feel like uh, Jesus is talking to my four-year-old right now, okay? Listen, I will give you a treat in just three minutes. Hang on, just three minutes. Daddy, how long is three minutes? You're taking so long, you know? Like, that's my four-year-old. And that's what the disciples said. What do you mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to him, is this what you're talking about, asking yourselves? What I mean by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again in a little while you will see me. Okay, Jesus has said this over and over. He's reiterated the same thing, and he does it once again. He basically is saying, I'm going to die, but I'll be back. That's what Jesus is saying. Last week we quoted Arnold Schwarzenegger, if you remember, from the kindergarten cop, right? Who is your daddy and what does he do, right? So same thing here. Jesus says, I'll be back, right? Not, not with an Austrian accent. He says, I'm going to die, but I'll be back. How do I know that Jesus is talking about his death? Well, he's talking about his death because he's referenced it several times already. And he says to his disciples, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. Highlight those words for me, good. You will weep and lament. That's the Jewish idiomatic expression that happened in first century in the first century when when someone of the Jewish faith died their friends and relatives would gather around them and they would do these two things weep and lament weep and lament anytime you see those words together someone has died and that's the response this word in the original language means weep wail or cry Woo! 
that whole thing. Lament is sing a funeral dirge. I don't know why I just did. I'm going to watch the video after the fact and go, I'm an idiot. Okay, this is beside the point. The point is, Jesus is talking about his death and they know because he says, you're going to do this. And the only time you do that is when someone dies. Okay, you will weep and lament, but the world will what? Rejoice. Well, rejoice. Why? It's because when Jesus shows up, he begins to challenge the power structures and systems of the world. And they're going to believe, suspect, conclude that because Jesus has been eliminated from the planet, that their power structures are going to win. The Pharisees, for example, thought their righteousness was the highest level of righteousness. Jesus comes along. He's completely righteous, blows their righteousness out of the water. They're going to, they were upset with them. The Roman Empire was upset with him because he declared that he was the new king, the rightful king, and in fact, he was. They're going to be upset with him. And so when they join together, the Roman Empire and the Pharisees, in order to conspire to kill Jesus, they're going to rejoice because they did it. The world will rejoice. He says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow, that's the third word now in the original language for grief and, and, and sorrow and sadness, sorrow, weep, and lament, all three different words, all of those things will turn to, say that word with me, joy. Now we're going to come back to that word because that's a critical word in the text. So mark that in your mind. We're going to come back. Let's keep going. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. <laughs> Have you ever, you ever like talked to a woman who's like eight, nine centimeters dilated and is starting to push? Would you call that word sorrow? Is that what you would call that word? I think this is the understatement of the year, Jesus, right? And, and look, here's the thing. Jesus is God, so as a male, he can use this illustration. Because you are not God, don't try, men, okay, to use this illustration. You know what? Someone back-checked me at hockey the other day, and, man, it felt like the pains of childbirth, right? That's what you're going to get from your spouse. As well, you should. But Jesus doesn't get that because there's no women listening, all disciples, men. Okay, She has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy of the human being has been born into the world. I know how this feels, not in the childbirth piece, but in the anguish piece. I've had two failed adoptions. They're really, really hard. I wept and lamented. It was difficult. But it's like I don't remember the anguish and the pain anymore because now I have a child to celebrate. That makes sense to me. Keep going. He says, so you also, so in the same way that a woman is happy and she doesn't remember that pain anymore when the child is born in the world, you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. I am so glad that Jesus says this right here. You will rejoice. You will have joy. Let's summarize it together. Jesus says, I'm going to die, but I'll be back. And then he says, when I come back, you'll be happy. That's it. That's what he means to his disciples. That's all he's saying. And then he says, in that day, uh, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. So interestingly, he says something that probably would have disappointed the disciples at that point. Because he says, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Okay, wait, 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 wait. So you're going to die, then you'll be back, and when you come back, we'll be happy. But we're not going to be able to ask anything of you? 
Well, that doesn't make sense because the last three years have been pretty good, Jesus, because we've been able to ask you whatever we want to ask you. Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? Sure. And he teaches them how to pray. Jesus, you told this parable. We have no idea what it means. Would you explain it to us? Sure. So he explains it to them. And now we're not going to be able to ask you anything? Well, that doesn't seem right or good or helpful or constructive. But there's a trade-off here. What Jesus says is, you will ask nothing of me, but I say to you, whatever you ask of whom? The Father, right? So now you get to go directly to God in my name. And Christians pray this all the time, right? Like, oh, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Whatever you ask in my name, he will give it to you. So here's what Jesus is saying. If you will just add that phrase onto the end of all of your prayers, Jesus will always give you whatever you ask for. Dear God, I want a 1968 Camaro Supersport. And I want it to be parked just outside those doors with a car seat in the back because I have to take my four-year-old home. And I pray that in Jesus' name, for real. Amen. So the good news is my Camaro is going to be parked just outside those doors after the service. Please don't touch it because I prayed in Jesus' name. Is that what Jesus means? Well, of course not. And if there is a Camaro out there, it's mine. Remember what happened, okay? That's not what Jesus means. What he means is now you know me. Now you understand me. Now you know what I love. Now you know what I hate. Now you know what grieves my heart. Now you know what makes me happy. Now you know all of those things. So bring those requests to the Father. And pray in my name with my desires, my thoughts, my heart in mind. Go to the Father in my name and he will give it to you. Now you have a direct link to God. It's interesting that the uh, death of Jesus and resurrection and subsequent sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost marks a definitive shift in the way the disciples relate to God. No longer are they relating to Jesus on a personal level, but they're relating ultimately to the Father on a spiritual level, which Jesus would say is far better. Wow. Love that. Then he says, until now, you've asked nothing in my name. You're about to do that. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Here's that word again, right? Joy. That word full in the original language is pleorma. It's like when you take a bowl and you pour water into it and the bowl gets filled up. It's going to, your joy is going to be complete. It's going to be full. Now here's, where I'd like to camp out on just for a moment. I'd like to camp out on this word joy because I think this word joy that Jesus has now repeated twice in the text might help us to understand what it is he's getting after. So let's rewind just for a moment. And I want you to do me a really big favor. I want you to picture yourself or think of yourself as a disciple listening to Jesus in this moment, you have left friends and family and belongings. You've left your employment, for some of the disciples, lucrative employment. You've left familiarity and security. You've left all that you've ever known to follow this rabbi. And maybe the disciples knew Jesus a little bit, many of them probably did, before they began to follow him around the countryside of first century Palestine. But really, he was a relative unknown. They didn't know very much about him. And then over the subsequent three years, what you begin to see is this man take a couple of pieces of bread 
and feed over 10,000 people with a couple of pieces of fish as well. You've seen him walk into a room where a, a young girl is dead on a bed and say, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up, and, he, and she just gets up. You've seen him walk into the tomb of a man that you knew, a guy named Lazarus, and, and walk up to the tomb and say, hey, Lazarus, come out. And then he just picking comes out. Grave clothes and all. And it's not just those public miracles that you've seen. What you've had the opportunity to experience is the private tenderness and meekness and control and power of something that you can only describe as divine. Recall that just moments ago, the disciples are in an upper room in Jerusalem. Jesus removes his outer garment, wraps a towel around his waist, and begins to wash off animal feces and dirt from their feet, taking the very position of a servant. At the very same time, he doesn't react in anger. He protects the orphan and the widow and the poor. He elevates the humble. He brings down the arrogant from their thrones. He has done all of this in your presence for three years. And you have come to the right conclusion, by the way, that he is the rightful king. But it's an incorrect conclusion that he's going to set up his kingdom in the here and now because the kingdom is different than you expected. So in just a couple of moments, what will happen in the word that Jesus uses in the text? A little while. Jesus will be beaten, ridiculed. His garments will be taken from him. His life will be taken from him. And he'll be buried in the tomb of a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea. So if you're a disciple and you had banked your entire life and your well-being and your spirituality and your sense of identity and hope and everything on this man and his control, his power, his authority is all taken from him by the Roman authorities and he's buried in a tomb, how would you feel? Would it be this word that describes how you felt? My hunch is probably not. My hunch is that you would feel catastrophic, irreparably broken, perhaps, perhaps even betrayed, right? Jesus, we gave you everything, and we're sure you could have stopped this. We've seen you do or we did see you do even greater things than stopping the crucifixion. Why in the world are you not stopping it? It's like their God has just vanished. He's gone. Who am I supposed to talk to now? Who am I supposed to follow now? What am I going to do with my life? I can't go back to my old life. I have no new life to go to. We, stuck, we, we staked our entire existence on you. And Jesus, just before he goes to the cross, tells them, in a little while, in a little while, your joy will be full. <clears throat> Perhaps, and this is where we move into this meaning 
of the passage, not interpretation, but what does it mean to you? Perhaps you have felt like the disciples felt. Perhaps your spiritual journey (coughs) is a reflection of the disciples' actual, physical, real journey with Jesus. Perhaps you have felt abandoned by God. Perhaps you have felt that you walked with him for two or three or four years and he was close to you and you saw him do miracles, bail you out of an abusive relationship, help you get sober, reconcile broken things, uh, change your inner life and mood and emotion, change your perspective. You start to come to church and all of a sudden you got friends that you didn't have before and you feel like God is doing miracles and things are moving along and then all of a sudden it's just like he's gone. Where did he go? What's happening? And you hit this spiritual, dark, deep valley where it feels hopeless and it feels as if, not not as if your prayers are getting answered with a no or with a wait, but like, who do I even pray to now? It's like God is gone. See, This is why I feel that this passage has something to say to us today because so many of us have asked that very question, haven't we? Where are you, God? Where did you go? Many of you have had a circumstance in your life, a situation in your life where you've gone through catastrophe and that catastrophe has pressed you up against the edge of heaven so close you feel like all you have to do is this and you hear the voice of God. Sometimes we go through difficult circumstances or even normal, mundane circumstances, and it's like there's a chasm between us and God. We'll never get bridged. And yet Jesus promises that one day your joy will be made full. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about that just for a moment. And then we're going to go back through the passage and allow Jesus to give us a little bit of counsel as to what to do and how to posture ourselves and what to remind ourselves of when we feel like God is gone. We've defined this word joy in here before as a deep abiding spiritual happiness that it's evident to those around you. But I want to borrow C.S. Lewis' definition of joy today. C.S. Lewis calls joy a reminder. He says it's never a possession. It's always a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. In other words, what Lewis says is that joy is that sense inside of you where God creates a longing for a world beyond this one. He even says that joy is an unsatisfied desire. (coughs) It's a longing, as we said. It's a reminder of things to come. In his uh, biography uh, of himself, uh, autobiography, specifically of his conversion experience, Lewis talks about where he was an atheist before he converted to Christianity. And there were three situations in his life. uh, Smelling a flower thinking of the idea of autumn and reading a couple of lines of poetry. No kidding. Those three situations in his life created with him a longing that he was unable to fulfill. 
And he distinguishes joy from pleasure. He says, pleasure is like eating Timbits. He doesn't really say that, but I do. He says, pleasure is like eating Timbits. It's satisfied in the here and now. Joy is something, it's a fire that's stoked in you that can't get quenched with anything in this world. It points you to a world beyond yourself. He goes on in Surprised by Joy. He says, joy produces longing that weighs heavy on the heart. <coughs> Excuse me. But it does so with precision. Yeah, Tim. So sweet, yeah. That's awesome. Cough drop. Not nearly as heavy as that big hunking thing. Everybody say, thank you, Tim. But it does so with precision and coordination. It dashes with the agility of a hummingbird, claiming its nectar from the flower and then zips away. It pricks and vanishes, leaving a wake of mystery and longing behind it. So essentially, here's what Lewis is saying. There are moments in your life where this longing for God is stoked. There's something inside of you that has an appetite for the divine that you really can't describe. In fact, in his biography of the life of C.S. Lewis, Alistair McGrath <coughs> points to a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience. Uh, it was published in the early 20th century by a Harvard graduate named William James or a Harvard professor named William James. James describes joy this way. He says that it's indescribable. You can't put language around it. He says it gives you insight into the divine, gives you kind of a picture of something beyond this world. He says that experience of joy is transient, that these, uh, these moments in your life where you have this longing, they don't stay for very long. And finally, that, this, that the joy that you feel, that something that you feel inside of you is the result of divine initiation. Now watch this very, very closely. Stick with me. I know I'm moving fast, but stick with me. Is this not what the disciples have just experienced? over three years? How do you ask, how does Thomas describe what he's just seen happen over three years? We, he just said, little girl, get up, and she got up. I don't know. How do you describe, how does Peter describe, how does John describe the transfiguration where Jesus pulled back his, the veil of his humanity and let them see all of his divinity. How is it that he describes that? They can't. It's indescribable. It's given them incredible insight into the heart of God. Uh, these moments are transient in that Jesus is now going to be with the Father. And, and, and they know that it's divine initiation that God sent his Son into the world. And it's stoked within them a longing for God. We have these experiences all the time, whether it's relationships, whether it's God's creation, where we can't describe that something that is stoked within us and it creates within us a longing for God and we allow, it to, allow that longing to push us towards the divine. But for the disciples, Jesus is about to vanish. That longing is about to be gone. So here's my question. What happens when our joy is gone? What happens when it feels like God has vanished? What happens when it feels like that longing has subsided or maybe even disappeared? For so many of you in this room, you have endured spiritual dry seasons. Maybe you're in one right now. And Jesus, it's like he's almost preparing his disciples for this. 
It's almost like he's saying, I know it's going to get dry. It's going to get difficult. It's going to get tough. It's going to get confusing and catastrophic. I know you're going to feel so incredibly distant from me, but can I just give you a couple of principles to help sustain you through this season? Now let's go back to the passage and see what he has to say. Jesus says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again in a little while you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? I think it's fascinating. But Jesus, here in the first couple lines of the passage, he uses two different Greek words for the word see. It's translated in in English, see, both times. You have seen me or you will see me. But Jesus is saying here, you have seen me in that you've observed me continually. This word in the original language means more of an experience. What he's saying to his disciples is right now you observe me, but in a little while you will experience me. There will be a deeper, greater understanding because of the cross, the resurrection, the ascension and the subsequent sending of the Holy Spirit. That's the promise. Now again, my my question if I'm a disciple is, what does that mean? Help me understand what that means. These guys, here's their question. What does this phrase mean? A little while, a little while, a little while, right? He says, you'll see me no longer, and again, you will see me. Here's the promise of God, ready? Stick with me. Right now, I'm about to go away, go to the cross. You will see me no longer. You will observe me no longer. But in a very short time, you will experience me. Here's my hunch that when Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a couple of the disciples would have had to look at one another and go, hey guys, remember though, he promised I know we don't see him now, but he promised we would experience him in a deeper way. He promised. He said it. It's true. We've got a bank on it. And in your moments of spiritual dryness, in that deep valley of the shadow of death, I would encourage you to remember the promises of God and remember this simple truth, that what you know trumps what you feel. What you know about God and his promises trumps what you feel. I had a very, very difficult time writing this on my pro presenter because I had to write this word trump. It was very challenging. It was hard, hard. What you know trumps what you feel. What you know is better than. What you know about God and his promises has to be the leader and then your feelings follow. I've, I've seen this illustration before. It's up here on the screen. It's a picture of, uh, of, that a group called uh, Power to Change uses. That fact pulls faith and faith pulls feeling. Fact is the engine that drives the train down the track. And then we place our faith, based, place our faith in God, our active trust in him based on the facts that we know about him and our feelings follow. And understand, when I say feelings, I'm not talking about you're 13 years old and at your very first high school dance and your palms are sweaty and your knees are knocking. I'm not talking about those kinds of feelings. I'm talking about the feelings and emotions that drive change in your life, that cause something different to happen in your soul. In fact, a man named Jonathan Edwards was a Puritan writer. He defined feelings or affections in this way. He says, the more vigorous and sensible exercises of the inclination and will of the soul. 
I'm going to say that a little slower because it's far richer and deeper than just this, oh, I feel scared. That's not what that is. The more vigorous and sensible exercises of the inclination and will of the soul, it's a deep stirring up of something within us that creates change in the way we act and think and believe and interact with one another. It's something deep within us, but the beginning of that shift in feeling is fact, is what we know. And that has to trump what we feel in the midst of spiritual dry seasons. You may feel spiritually dry, but you've got to let the promises of God, namely that you will experience me, Jesus says to his disciples, be the leader in that situation. I'll give you one quick illustration and then we'll move on. I can observe facts in the created world around me. The sea is teeming with life. The mountains are gargantuan. The universe is far beyond my comprehension. The human eye is far more intricate and exquisitely designed than I could ever imagine. And it causes me, those are the facts, that causes me to put my active trust, my faith in God, and that changes the way I feel. It gives me an appreciation for beauty. It gives me an appreciation for the things around me. It causes gratitude in my heart. But I can't let the feeling or I can't expect the feelings to be the engine on my train. It's got to begin with fact. What we know about the promises of God has to trump what we feel. And this has got to be the case for the disciples as they mourn and grieve. What we know, what he promised, it's more important than what we feel. Jesus says, a little while, a little while, a little while, a little while. Next verse, a little while. Next verse, a little while, a little while. Nine times that phrase, a little while, is repeated. It's almost as if, check this out. It's almost as if Jesus is God in the flesh. (gasps) And he can step outside of time and see it for what it is. He can see the end from the beginning. He doesn't just see the cross. He sees the cross and the empty tomb and the ascension and the giving of the Holy Spirit. He sees it all together. Same thing in your life. You might be going through a spiritual dry season. You might be going through a difficult circumstance. But God sees the whole and not the part. And in the midst of this, you have to remind yourself that I see in part, but God sees the whole. For God... (laughs) Or for you, that spiritual dry season may feel like it's been going on forever. I'm never going to get out of it. You know how long it's been for God? Just a little while. Just a little while. I mentioned before that I've been through a couple of failed adoptions, and they felt grueling. They felt painful. They felt unnecessarily long that grieving after the fact. And now I look back and they feel just like a moment. It's almost like you forget the pain because there's a joy of a child being born into your life. Isn't that weird that Jesus would use that metaphor? That's what it feels like. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we see in a mirror dimly right now, but one day we see face to face. Right now we just see and observe, but one day we will experience. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. There is a day coming, men and women of God, when you will not see in part anymore, that you will see the whole just as God sees the whole. 
and your trials and your spiritual dry seasons will make sense in the context of God's grand redemptive plan. It may not feel that way right now, but it's true that one day you will see the whole. Let's keep going. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. I'm going to say something I think that's fairly obvious here, but when we apply it to our spiritual situation, I think it's really, really profound. Jesus says here that that you will weep and lament, but your sorrow is going to turn into joy. Do we understand that death always precedes resurrection and that sorrow always precedes joy? Like in order to have someone raised to new life, they have to be dead first, right? I've joked about this before that like Jesus wasn't mostly dead like the princess bride. He was all the way dead, right? He, he's dead, dead. And that has to happen in order for the miracle of the resurrection to take place. In the same way, sorrow always precedes joy, especially if we take Lewis's definition of joy as a longing. As a longing. We have to get to the point, sorrow, of where we look at this life and we say nothing more can satisfy me or nothing can satisfy me. There are longings within me that will never be satisfied here. There's a hunger within me that will never be satiated here. There's a thirst within me that will never be satiated here and or quenched here. And you get to the point where you say to yourself, that's it, I've tried everything. I've tried other people, I've tried substances, I've tried Timbits, I've tried Timbits, I've tried Timbits, I've tried Timbits a lot of times, I just keep going back to that well, right? That there's something about this world, it's never going to satisfy me. And when we experience that sorrow, it drives within us a longing for something greater. And your sorrow will turn to joy. In the midst of that spiritual dry season, I would encourage you, look for the ways in which God is stoking within you an appetite for him. Listen closely. Not the things he gives, but him. Not the gifts, but the giver. Not the blessings of this life, but the personal origin of those blessings, God himself. And in the midst of that sorrow, allow it to drive a joy and a longing within you. Two more and we'll be done. Jesus says, when a woman is giving birth, she is sorrow because her hour has come. If I was about to give birth, I'd have sorrow too. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you, Jesus says, have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. I feel like it's really interesting here because Jesus shifts his language towards the end of this passage. Because initially he says, you're not gonna see me anymore for a little while and then in a little while you're going to see me again. But look what he says here. He says, but I will see you again. It's almost like he's shifted now and he's reminding them that any joy or longing that you have for God is a result of divine action. 
He's saying, I will see you, not you will see me, but I will come back, I will initiate, I'll come after you, I will seek after you, I will search after you. This is always the case that the longing you have for God, as small as it may be, or big as it may be, or fluctuating as it may be, is always a result of his activity in your life and his initiation, not your own. I know that because Ephesians 2 says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. So in the midst of that spiritual dry season, it's a waiting time on God to say, I can't necessarily stoke any of that on my own. I can posture myself such that I can receive from God whatever it is he wants to give to me, but I can't pull myself up by the bootstraps and make myself desire God. It's his divine activity and initiation in your life that draws you to himself. Finally, he says, so also you have sorrow now, but your hearts eventually will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. <coughs> there will be a day, my friends, where your longing for God will be fulfilled. That joy that Lewis talks about, that desire for something greater, that desire for the divine, there will be a day when it's filled and no one will take it from you. And I know it feels heavy in spiritual dry seasons. I know it feels difficult. I know when the wind and waves of life hit you and you feel like God is gone. I, feel, I know that when you ask those questions, where are you, God? And you're in your private prayer closet and it's like, I don't even want to pray. I don't even want to read my Bible. I don't even know if God is there. And that feels so heavy on your heart. Remember that Jesus says one day, that longing that you have for me. The longing that can only be satisfied by me. It will be fulfilled and no one will ever take that away from you. I have a, a friend whose father-in-law was part of the original uh, team of scientists that went into the biosphere. Do you know what the biosphere is? It's this thing they built in Arizona. This, Arizonans are really weird. Uh, I used to live there. I know. Very weird. Okay? And, and, and essentially, they built this huge dome out in the middle of the desert. And inside this dome, they tried to recreate human and botanical life and all that stuff, flora and fauna, in a highly controlled environment. Right, Because in a dome, you don't have to deal with pollution. You don't have to deal with toxic soil. You don't have to deal with Canadians. <laughs> Sorry. I just couldn't help myself. It's horrible. All right. So they build this dome. They put these scientists in their completely controlled environment. But the thing collapsed, and they weren't sure why. Life started to collapse, and the vegetation started to collapse, and, and, and the scientists weren't able to sustain themselves, and guys had to come out of there because they were emaciated, and they couldn't grow food, and all these different things. They had no idea what was happening. So they started to do research, and they started to peel back the layers, and what they uncovered was this, that the tallest trees inside that biosphere had a particular bird that lived in them. And those birds would eat seeds and they would scatter them around the rest of the biosphere. And they would grow plants that way and, 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 and feed vegetation that way. And life within that context kind of depended on those birds that lived in those trees. 
But those trees started to die. Shallow roots, weak trunks, and they started to die. So those birds had no place to go, so they started to die. All their vegetation started to die, and the things thing collapsed. And why did the trees die? Because inside the biosphere, there is no wind. It's a dome. It's completely enclosed. Controlled variables. They didn't build big fans in there to recreate wind. Why would you? But those trees needed wind to remind themselves that they needed to grow a little more stable. That their roots needed to grow a little deeper. That their trunks needed to become a little stronger. And that's what drove life within them. That's what caused them to grow and flourish. And thus created life everywhere else. But when there was nothing to challenge them, nothing to press up against them, nothing that they felt like they had to overcome, they withered and died. Friends, if you're going through a spiritual dry season, I know that sometimes it can feel like wind and not just a cool evening breeze, but a hurricane that's going to strike you down, that's going to cause you to crumble, that's going to take away your life. And what I can tell you this morning is that the promises of God are these that one day your joy will be full and no one will take it away from you. In other words, just endure the wind. It will be worth it. I know it feels too hard. I know it feels too heavy. I know you're living in a tension and you're going, where is God? But endure the wind. Press back up against it. Trust God's promises. Keep longing after him and keep responding to that longing he's stoking in your heart. Because one day his promise is this and his promises are sure that your joy, your longing will be filled up. And no one will take it away from you. Pray with me. If I don't uh, miss my guess, there's maybe some in this room uh, this morning, just with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you would, that um, maybe this is what you needed to hear today. Right? Maybe you're going through a spiritual dry season, and what you needed to hear was that God is still with you and he's not left you and that what you know should trump what you feel and that that sorrow that you're experiencing can drive a joy and a longing in you and that God is still with you and he has not forsaken you and that the wind will just make you stronger. And if that's you, I would ask you to do something really brave, really courageous. I'm say, gosh, I'm going through a spiritual dry season. I would love for you to let me pray for you. So if you would do something really brave with heads bowed and eyes closed, nobody's looking around. Would you slip your hand up if that's you, if I can pray for you this morning? If you're going through a rough patch, a spiritual dry season, I can just come alongside you. Good. Perfect. Got it. Okay, I'm with you. Okay, let me pray for you. Oh God, we need to be reminded that it's just a little while. It's just a little while and 
you'll be back. Just a little while and our joy will be made full. Just a little while our faith will become sight. Just a little while we'll no longer see in part, but we'll see in full. God, just a little while. Give us strength, give us courage. Uphold us, sustain us, strengthen weak knees, oh God. Remind us that we are not in this alone, but we're in this together as family. God, stir up and stoke within us. Continue to stoke within us that longing for you. And God, satisfy us with just a portion of yourself. God, I pray for those in this room that are struggling, they're going through a spiritual dry season. Would you remind them that you prepare a table for them in the presence of their enemies and goodness and mercy will follow them whether they know it or not, feel it or not, believe it or not, all of their days. God, we are grateful that you listen and that you hear us. In Christ's name, as people said, amen. Can we stand together and sing in response?